Hi, this is Christy Bates of Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome to episode 51 of the Deep South Dharma podcast, being released on Sunday, June 7th, 2020. In this episode, we take a moment to reflect on what it might mean to take refuge at a time like this, as well as considering what the Buddha's response was to the recognition of his own privilege in his time and society in his early 30s. Lastly, I make an announcement about the upcoming episodes of the podcast for the next couple of months. For now, I just want to remind you, you are always welcome to join us Saturday mornings, 10 a.m. Central, for the as the Oxford Practice Group is online right now, and we are so enjoying having people from outside of Oxford join us regularly for that. Very glad to have you with us, and hope others of you will feel welcome to come. And then on Wednesdays, I offer a brief mindfulness practice, different different practices each Wednesday at 11.30 Central Time, and you'll be done before lunch. I also will mention, I signed up, I mean, it feels like eons ago, but I signed up quite a while back to attend a retreat at Heartwood where Bhikkhu Bodhi is leading um, the weekend of July 16th through 19th. I received an announcement this week that that is being shifted to an online retreat for everyone's safety. So what I hope that means for you if, is that if you're not already signed up, you will take the opportunity to sign up for that. You may be familiar with Bhikkhu Bodhi's work in translating so much of the Pali Canon. You may be familiar with him through his work with uh, addressing hunger domestically and throughout the world through Buddhist Global Relief. Or you may have attended um, or listened online to a teaching of his. I had the great good fortune to attend a retreat of his a couple of years ago at Hartwood and just found it incredibly enriching. So now that this next one is being offered online, I just want to encourage you to go to heartwoodrefuge.org to take a look at that and consider attending. All right, back to our episode. Thanks for being here. This week, I wanted to offer really just some reminders. I find that in times of great upheaval, great change, great grief, that 
sometimes reminders of some basics in this contemplative practice can be really helpful for calling us back to the path if our internal or external reactivity has drawn us away. Just giving us a way to remind ourselves that we do have a path, even through all this. So first I want to remind us of the practice of taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, In taking refuge in the Buddha, we're not talking about hiding out from what's going on or running into denial. In fact, quite the opposite. When we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, we're talking about taking refuge, making our home in that place in us that is awake, in the one in us who is awake. In taking refuge in the Dharma, We're taking refuge in the truth of how things really are and in the teachings and in the path that we can follow, which I'll remind us about in just a moment. In taking refuge in the Sangha, we're talking other words for it or sometimes fellowship, Dr. Martin Luther King talked about the beloved community and teacher Thich Nhat Hanh picked up that theme of the beloved community. So those three reminders of our capacity to be awake, the truth and the teachings that we can touch base in, and the beloved community that walks with us in this, these are things that we can take refuge in, refer to, might be a different way of saying it, as we navigate these really changing, challenging times. I want to talk for a second about the Buddha's response to the recognition of his privilege. Because, of course, in the story of his life that we're often given, we're told that he was raised behind the palace walls and that it was only when he went out beyond the palace walls that he saw the reality of sickness and aging and death. But also, when we reflect on this, surely, if we want to be a little more literal, we can recognize that he must have seen aging occur, even behind his palace walls. He must have seen people get sick and maybe be treated. He certainly knew of death because his own mother had died either in childbirth or before he had turned a year old, depending on which version of the story you go by. So it's not that he didn't know intellectually that those things occurred. 
It's that seeing them outside the gates of his privileged existence was another thing entirely. And being in the upper caste that he was in, he also had the option, like many in his caste in the day, many young men, to go on a spiritual quest. And in fact, the story tells us that the fourth messenger he saw outside of the gates was a man in yellow robes and Siddhartha Gautama's attendant, when, when Siddhartha asked who that person was, his attendant let him know that's a, a person seeking the deathless. And that was something that Siddhartha was interested in. As his heart was breaking in the midst of what he was seeing, to look for something, some path that one could navigate through all of it to go beyond or to the other shore, as he often said. Now I'll mention also briefly that the Buddha is known to have gone from the extremes of a self-indulgent lifestyle to one of self-mortification for six or eight years. And um, this was after he had, he had initially gone to some teachers who were revered in his time sort of learned everything they had to teach him. In fact, they told him he was enlightened. And his reflection on that was that this was not what he was looking for. It's not that it was nothing. He enjoyed the experiences of deep meditation, of the bliss that he experienced, but in telling the story later, he spoke of struggling with the fact that after these blissful meditations, he would come sort of come back to the his everyday activity, his everyday state of being, I guess we'd say. And he he felt no difference, found no difference in himself, in his way of seeing things. Those early experiences gave him some brief respites from his suffering, but didn't fundamentally deconstruct his suffering. And so he kept looking. And so went into these extremes of, of self-mortification and came to a point of wisdom in recognizing that that was not only just as ignoble, ignoble and pointless, meaningless, as was self-indulgence, it was also painful <laughs> on top of all that. And it was not any good for anyone. And the Buddha was looking, well, he wasn't called the Buddha yet, but he was looking for a solution that was of benefit to himself and to the world. 
And he continued with his seeking and his practice until he found that. And in describing it to his friends in his first teaching, he spoke of the Four Noble Truths and he spoke of this path that he that is the translation we're given is that it was he was referred to it as the middle way, the middle way between self-indulgence and self-mortification. And as I've shared in another episode of this podcast, I think of it not so much as a middle, like, you know, 50% self-indulgent or 50% self-mortification, but more that this middle way got him off of that continuum of self-involvement, of self-focus in such a way that the path becomes the focus, the practice becomes the focus. And he described the path as being one of right view, of seeing the truth, of right intention, of right speech or wise speech, of right action. And right action is spelled out in numerous ways. Um, As I mentioned in the introduction, part of that being in the precepts all of which boil down to a practice of non-harming. This path also has the aspects of right livelihood, taking into consideration not only how we earn money and build our resources, but also how we spend them, how we spend our resources of money and time. And having the intention and the follow-through in not allowing the buildup of our resources or how we spend them to rest on the backs of other beings. The last three path factors include right effort. And right effort has to do both with the Persistence in practice when it's no longer, hmm, when it's no, when the new wears off, I guess I'd say. When the new wears off and those early experiences of practice start to lose their shine, that we continue to practice and we fine tune our practice, not overdoing, not underdoing so that we get the results that are beneficial for ourselves and others. And then there's the path factor of wise concentration, which assumes some degree of dedication to a meditation practice. Daily prayer and meditation that may look like a sitting practice, it may look like a walking practice, it may look like a journaling practice, whatever it is for you that allows you to remind yourself, really, that the thinking mind, the narrative thinking mind, is not in charge. And that if you try to allow it to be in charge, we get situations such as the ones we're living in right now. And finally, uh, right mindfulness being the eighth path factor. 
this intention of staying aware, planting seeds of awareness, of present moment awareness, moment after moment after moment, staying in reality so that we see patterns. When the Buddha made his discoveries, he eventually made his way back home because part of his motivation had been to seek something in this life that would be worthwhile to leave his son besides self-indulgence. And so returning home, he revolutionized his relationships with everyone in his life. And not only made those relationships, relationships that were based on non-harming, on generosity, on wisdom, on goodwill, but also being willing, when he had a willing listener, to teach kings and others who came to him about these same principles. So when we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, we're not talking about escaping from what's unpleasant. We're not talking about picking up certain half-understood principles or words that we hear thrown around in Buddhism, such as emptiness, and thinking that we that, that means it doesn't matter what happens. The Buddha himself showed us that what happens next matters very much. Once we've had an awakening, then what do we do with it? How do we bring it back? How do we establish the beloved community? How do we see how what how do we intend how do we set our motivations use our speech action our livelihood how do we make effort how do we concentrate and build mindfulness and heedfulness so that we are of benefit to ourselves and to the world those are touchstones that we can use right now and refer to as often as needed. Let's just give ourselves a minute to let that settle.
In the coming weeks, I'll just take one path factor at a time. Just to spend a few minutes to reflect on it, to uphold it, to allow our hearts and minds to refer to these as we continue to navigate our way through the next couple of months. A reminder and an expression of gratitude. The Deep South Dharma podcast is supported not by any commercial endeavors, but by the generosity of some of its listeners. People are generous in listening to the podcast, in sharing it with friends, in offering me feedback or topics that you would like to have discussed or your questions. And people also have been supporting us through anchor.fm which allows you to do that at the level of 99 cents a month or 4.99 a month or 9.99 a month. So if that's something that you would like to participate in, go to anchor.fm/deepsouthdharma/support. You'll be supporting and inspiring me and also allowing me to devote a little more time to the development of the podcast. And in general, I just want to thank you for your practice, which is good for you, for the world, and leads to peace. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Deep South Dharma Podcast. We hope you'll feel welcome to share this with anyone you think would find it useful. And as always... Feel free to message us your feedback, questions, or topics of interest. Until we meet again, take good care of this body, mind, and heart.